0: Let's pray together. Our Father, we bring ourselves to you, our hearts, our ears, our minds, our eyes, and we ask for your help that they would be working properly and attentively so that we could hear you. And we pray that you would use this time as part of the means by which you pull us away from the deceitfulness of sin and by which our hearts don't become hardened and by which we are kept in your hand And we pray that you would keep us there till the end. Come do that this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, I've finished a a novel called Silence. Uh, It's being made or has been made by Martin Scorsese into a a new film. And so if you haven't read the book or haven't watched the movie and intend to, I would encourage you to close your ears because I'm about to spoil the whole thing. (laughs) And I want you to know that I warned you that I was going to do that. So uh, the story is about this Jesuit priest named Rodriguez. And Rodriguez and this other priest go to Japan in the 1600s. And they go as missionaries there. And they go in part... Because there's these rumors that there's this older Jesuit priest, a man who had taught them while they were in seminary, a a sort of giant of the faith. If it were our day, it'd be names like Tim Keller or John Piper. Well, they hear that this man has apostatized, that he's recanted, that he's abandoned the faith, and they can hardly believe that. That under torture and under persecution, he has left Christian faith. And so these two missionaries go, and Rodriguez goes, and as the story develops, when they get to Japan, they discover sort of this underground church, that there are Christians there, that though there hasn't been the institution of the church or pastors or priests, they have persevered and kept the faith. And so this priest begins to minister to them and serve them and and show them the way all over again. And, And he sees with his own eyes Japanese Christians being persecuted. Them suffering for their faith, as the story goes, the magistrate, the officials come and they force people to apostatize. And the way they do that is they they bring this thing called a fumi in the book. It's this copper image of Jesus, and they tell the people, "Step on the face of Christ, and you'll be saved. And if not, then." The Rodriguez, the priest, begins to see what happens to them. They're drowned and burned and persecuted and crucified. They even say to him, you don't have to mean it with your heart. Just step on it and you'll be fine. Well, as the story goes, eventually Rodriguez himself is captured. And, and you begin to hear these conversations within his own mind as he's struggling with his faith, as he's watched people suffer, as some are even suffering for him. They, they have other people being tortured until he's willing to recant, and he's fighting with God's silence, and he's struggling with himself within faith and doubt and all the rest. Now, I'll spare you some of the details, but the most heart-wrenching scene of the whole book is where Rodriguez himself is finally brought in front of the Fumi where he now has to encounter, where he's being told to step on the image of Jesus. And now here is this man, the protagonist, the hero of the book, the man who has been praying to suffer well and stand with Jesus, to be a martyr for Jesus. He's watched his own suffering. He's watched the suffering of others. And in the book, he lifts his foot and he steps on the image. And he recants and he apostatizes and he abandons. I was so caught off guard, I had to put the book down at Barnes & Noble, catch my breath, reread the page because I wanted to make sure that I had read it right. He left the faith. And as you keep reading the story, you, you keep hearing what happens to him. Now, usually, I've said before from here, I need movies and stories to have happy endings. So I'm not the artistic type that wants to see the complex, ne- I just want the guy to get the girl and bad to be defeated and a good story. This one, however, I wasn't disappointed. I was stunned, but not disappointed. And, and the author, this Japanese convert himself, a man named Shizuko Endo, he, he writes this story in such a way that you're pulled into the story and you find yourself not looking down at Rodriguez, At this Jesuit priest, but standing beside him and asking yourself, What would I have done? What about me? Would I have held fast? Would I have endured? You didn't get to the end and feel contempt. You didn't feel superior. You got to the end and you were humbled. You were sobered. You found yourself asking yourself, What about me? Endo, as I mentioned, was a Japanese convert, a Christian himself. And so, as soon as the Jesuit priest steps on the foot, in his book, he includes this detail, and a cock crowed. And I was reminded of the passage we're looking at today, because in our passage today, I want you to hear that Mark does the same thing. We're looking at Mark 14, verses 43 to 52. You're going to need a a Bible open, because we're going to be looking up and down this passage. It's on page 851 of the Black Bibles in front of you, Mark chapter 14, verses 43 to 52. And I want you to see that Mark, I think, he does the same thing. He pulls you into the story of Jesus being arrested. And Mark is going to give you some snapshots, some pictures, some portraits of the disciples of Jesus. And I want you to see that the picture he paints of the disciples is not a good one. In in fact, if this was the first time you were hearing this, if this was the first time you had ever read this story, I want you to know I think you would have put the book down. I think you would have caught your breath. I think you would have to reread the page to say, did I just hear that right? Because Mark tells us that by the end, one of Jesus' disciples betrayed him. And another one, the leader of them all, denied him. And the rest of them abandoned him. They all fell away. And when you get to this scene, I think you don't end up seeing it where you're looking down at them but instead standing beside them asking yourself, what about me? I don't think you read this section and feel contempt and certainly not superior. I think, if anything, we're humbled by it and sobered by it and warned by it. And and here's why. Here's why I think that's the case. These 12 men have been discipled by Jesus himself, meaning no one on the planet has ever received better discipleship. No one has ever been better trained, better taught. No one has ever seen a model of what it looks to like to live a faithful Christian life in front of them. No one has ever had the experience these men did. They ate with God in the flesh. They traveled with God in the flesh. They slept under the stars next to God in the flesh. In fact, in John's account of the gospel, he says there are so many more things that Jesus did and said and happened that if we wrote them all down, there wouldn't be enough books in the whole world to tell you about it. Meaning there's so many more moments that you and I have no idea that they had every idea. They had access to. They were with him at all times. Imagine Jesus in the flesh investing in your spiritual life. Jesus in the flesh taking you under his wing, showing you the way. And by the end, one betrayed him, one denied him, and every one of them abandoned him, fell away. And if that's the case for them, surely we would ask, then what about us? What about me? What about you? Will your faith in Jesus last Will you be a Christian tomorrow morning or the morning after that? Or if God should give you 10,000 mornings and the 10,000th morning, will you still follow him, love him, be his disciple? Because no doubt, many of us know people who once seemed to love the Lord, whose zeal for the Lord seemed like it was passionate and great, whose fires in their heart were white hot and we have seen people where that love has grown cold, those fires have died. The zeal has disappeared, and they're not even following Jesus anymore. And so the question would be, what about you? What about you tomorrow morning or 10,000 mornings from now? W- one preacher I heard, he said, there's sort of two ways that we could tend to respond to that, to answer that question, which is for some of us, our hearts right now, in the quiet of our own hearts, they're screaming out, yes, absolutely, I have no doubt. Listen, I'm not perfect, but I know that I love Jesus. And tomorrow morning and the morning after that and 10,000 mornings from now, I will be his. If that's you, friend, I think there's something you need to hear from this passage. And that would be, you are weaker than you know. You are weaker than you think, more sinful than you know. There's others of us, though, Our hearts are shouting a different answer. Our hearts right now are fluttering with panic. It's like someone has put their finger on something you've already been scared about, and your answer would be, I don't know. I have no idea. You, your answer would be, I, I sometimes am not sure if I'm a Christian now, let alone 10,000 mornings from now. I have no idea if someone as weak as me, as awful as me, if God, if I'll still be around 10,000 mornings from now. If that's you, friend, there's something you need to hear in this passage. And what you need to hear is, Jesus is stronger than our weakness. I think there's two things for us this morning. We are weaker than we know, but Jesus is stronger than we are weak. We are weaker than we know, but Jesus is stronger than our weakness. Let me show you those two things. Here's the first. We're weaker than we know. The passage we're looking at is 43 to 52, but if you look for a moment in your Bibles, just scan up and scan down what comes before and what comes after, and you'll notice that Mark has laid out the chapter in such a way that there's almost something we can't miss. In verse 17 to 21, Jesus predicts that Judas will betray him. In 26 to 28, Jesus predicts that they will all fall away. The shepherd will be struck and they will scatter like sheep. In verse 30 to 31, Jesus predicts that Peter will deny. And then if you scan down and look at our passage and what comes after, what happens? Judas betrays, just like he said he would. They all fall away, just like he said he would. Peter denies, not once, not twice, but three times, just like he said he would. It's almost as if Mark has structured this chapter to highlight for us the utter weakness and failure of Jesus' disciples. And we see it in vivid color in our passage. Look at 43. And immediately, while he, that's Jesus, was speaking. Now, just to get you caught up, this is picking up where we left last week. Jesus was in the garden. If you remember, he had prayed, Father, let this hour pass. Take this cup from me. He emerged from the garden, however, saying, not my will, but yours be done. He told his disciples, rise, let's be going. The hour has come. My betrayer is at hand. Well, Mark says, while he was mid-sentence, while he was still speaking, Judas came, 43. One of the twelve And whenever Mark tells us about Judas, he always adds sort of this descriptor. Did you catch it? He says, Judas, one of the 12. He's done that before. In fact, if you scan up to verse 10, when Mark first introduces that Judas is going to betray Jesus, that he's going to go to the chief priest to sell him out, he tells us, Judas, one of the 12 went to the chief priest to to arrange for Jesus' betrayal. Same here. Now, Judas came, one of the 12. It's almost like Mark won't let you forget that. Mark wants to highlight for you that the one that finally did Jesus in, the one that sold him out, was one of his own. It was one of the 12. I want you to hear, if you didn't know this story, if you were reading this for the first time at Barnes & Noble, I'm telling you, you would have never guessed that. If you were reading this story and you were thinking to yourself, who's finally going to get Jesus? What bad guys finally going to get him? You would have never guessed this. You would have thought to yourself, maybe it would have been the scribes. They were always fighting with Jesus. Maybe the Pharisees, they hated Jesus. Maybe the chief priests, they've been after Jesus for a long time. Maybe the Herodians, they didn't like the politics of Jesus. Or the Sadducees, they didn't like the theology of Jesus. But you would have never guessed that it would have been one of his own. One of the 12. One of his friends. One of his companions. One of the ones Jesus said, I eat bread with you. I shared a table with you. If it was an enemy, I could have taken it, but you were my friend, a peer, as the psalmist Jesus quotes says. You would have never imagined that one of the 12 would have come into the garden that night and addressed him saying, Rabbi, this term of great honor and yet meant no honor by it. You would have never guessed that he would have kissed him. And from what I've read they say that this kiss wouldn't have just been a peck on the cheek. That the word Mark uses would have been this idea of a tender kiss, an affectionate kiss, almost a passionate, prolonged kiss, sort of like when the prodigal son, if you remember the story that Jesus tells, when he comes home and the dad embraces him and kisses him, that kind of kiss. I mean, the the sign of greatest love is what Judas used to show the greatest hatred. And greatest betrayal. I'm telling you, if you read this for the first time, you would have put the book down and caught your breath and reread it again to say, did I catch that right? It couldn't have been. Now, whether you're here and you're a Christian or not, I don't think anyone needs to convince you Judas is a bad guy. No one needs to twist your arm for you to know that. Everybody knows that about Judas. This is why nobody names their kids Judas Iscariot. Right? Everybody knows. I mean, to be called even in our day a Judas is the worst thing you could be called. And yet, while we rightly hold this betrayal with contempt, this morning I want to suggest we should be humbled by it, sobered by it, warned by it. For isn't it something that a man could be around Jesus for three years, day and night, night and day, that he could hear everything Jesus was going to say? See everything Jesus was going to do. That he could have an in to moments John says none of us have an into to and don't even know about. And he saw it all. And yet, his heart not be won. His heart not be moved. That, that he could come to the end of that and not be changed and still love money more than Jesus. Isn't it something that that would be possible? That Judas had access to everything the other 11 did. You think of that. The other 11 saw Jesus, heard his teachings, witnessed the miracles. Judas had access to everything they had access to. The other 11 went on to become pillars of the church, the apostles on which the church is built, the ones who hold and give us the testimony of Jesus Christ. They become saints of God, and this man is forever remembered in history as a tool of Satan. And he had access to everything they had access to, an opportunity just like they did. Isn't that something? That you could be around Jesus, hear all of this over and over and over and over again, and not have the needle of your heart moved one degree. To be unmoved, unimpressed, unchanged, still love other things far more than him. Isn't it something that this man, Judas, externally appeared no different than the rest? I want you to know that. No different than the rest. When they went out to do ministry... Judas went out to do ministry. So when they cast out demons, Judas was with them casting out demons. When they taught, Judas was taught. When they went out two by two, Judas went out two by two. There was nothing about Judas externally. I mean, even up to the last supper, Judas was there at that meal. He had his feet washed just like Jesus. Everything about him, and yet the whole time being a pretender. I mean, isn't that something? And, and I want you to know, the proof of that is, do you notice, nobody suspected Judas. Nobody suspected him. If you scan back up to verse 17, when Jesus was giving the Last Supper, he told them, one of you will betray me. Isn't it something that Mark doesn't say then, and then the 11 look towards Judas? Right? Isn't it something that even loudmouth Peter doesn't nudge James or, Pe- or John and say, hey, ask him if it's Judas, because I've been wondering about him right? They all said, is it me? Nobody had a thought. Nobody knew. Nobody expected. Nobody thought all the while it would have been him. Isn't it something that externally this man looked like all the others? And yet the whole time was a pretender, had never let Jesus in. So you and I look at Judas this morning, and we should ask ourselves, Am I immune from going through the motions and yet having my heart detached from the reality of everything around me? Am I safe from hearing week and week and week and week after week and yet having not the needle of my heart changed or moved? Am I immune that I should follow Jesus when it's convenient and yet bail on him when things don't go my way. Or you even think Judas sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Not even the 300 denarii that Mary, when she broke the, the, the perfume, like he didn't even value him enough to want more. He, he sold him for 30 pieces. And you should ask yourself, am I immune from belittling the value of Jesus? From not seeing his worth and value of, of treating, of, of failing to see how precious he is. I, I want to say to us this morning, we should be sobered and humbled and warned, for our friends, we are weaker than we know. But it's not just Judas in this passage. While well, he commits the ultimate betrayal, Mark has others for us to see. Look at verse 47. After they seize him, 47 says, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. In your mind's eye, would you get the scene for a moment? It's obvious, isn't it, that Judas and the mob that he leads doesn't get Jesus. It's obvious that Judas didn't get Jesus. I mean, it's almost like if it was back in the day and you had to arrest Gandhi, would you imagine that you would send in a SWAT team to arrest Gandhi? If you sent in a SWAT team to arrest Gandhi, you'd go, they obviously don't understand Gandhi or his message or what he's about. Jesus says, Really, did you come with swords and clubs to capture me like I was a robber, like I was a a bandit on the run, like I was leading some kind of insurrection or rebellion? He says to them, you saw me every day in broad daylight. I was in the temple teaching. I wasn't ducking in and out of the shadows. I wasn't lurking in caves. I wasn't hiding out at night. In broad daylight, every day I was teaching, and you didn't arrest me. And Mark has already told us, of course they didn't. Because they were scared of the crowds and his popularity. So they needed to wait for the night. Needed to wait when the crowds wouldn't be there. And Jesus says, let it be so that scripture is fulfilled. I mean, if Judas thought that Jesus was going to resist, that he was going to fight his way out of this, so much so that he says, listen, when I kiss him, make sure you seize him and you take him away under guard. Then you'd go, Judas did not get Jesus. Who he was or what he was about, or what his message, and certainly not what he had come to do. But Mark wants you to know, it's not just Judas that doesn't get him, is it? Verse 41, when they came, 41 says, One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Mark says, one of those, and he doesn't name that. I love that he doesn't name it. He says, one of the guys, and, and we'll just leave the name out. And John's account says, he rats him out. And he says, no, no, that was Peter. I want you all to know Peter did that, right? And, and to me, I've always thought that was funny because we said that Peter was the source for Mark. And it's almost like Peter's like, let's just say somebody did it. We don't have to mention who did that. Let's just say one of the bystanders. And, Pe- and John says, no, 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 Peter did that. And one preacher I listened to, he said that meant that Peter either had the greatest aim in the world or the worst aim in the world, meaning that with a sword, he was so good he could take off an ear or so bad that he could miss a head, right? One or the other. But either way, we're told that Peter's reaction is to pull out a sword and to swing at this man. The other accounts tell us that Jesus at that moment says to Peter, Peter, what are you doing? Right? He, say, he says to them, listen, d- didn't you know that I could call down 12 legions of angels? 60,000 angels could be here this moment, wiping everyone out. Or, or didn't you know, Peter, that I, I came out of the garden saying, I will drink the cup. If, if Peter, if these men thought that Jesus was going to resist res- arrest, that what he would do, what he would encourage, was them to kill everybody and fight their way out of it, that the one who taught to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you was now going to somehow resist arrest and kill everybody, then certainly they didn't understand. Peter didn't understand what Jesus was about, what his message was, certainly not what he had come to do. do. Do you get the point? Nobody in the scene gets Jesus. His enemies don't, but neither do his friends. But of course, Mark wants to show us that their failure is not just a failure to understand him, but to stand with him, to stand by him. When it seemed clear that Jesus wasn't going to resist arrest, that he was going to let them take him. When that was what was clear that it was going to go down, verse 50 says, and they all left him and fled. And they all left him and fled. Would you do me a favor and look up to verse 31? Before all of this went down, Jesus said, this is what's going to happen, the shepherd will be struck. He quotes this verse from Zechariah, God will strike the shepherd, and when he does, the sheep will be scattered. And Peter speaks, and he says, no, 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 that will never happen. And in verse 31, he says, but he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then catch this, and they all said the same. Right? Peter's the loudmouth, so we know what he said. But did you catch? They all said that. They all said they would die with him. They all said they would not deny him. They all said, we will last. We will endure. We will be with you. They all pledged loyalty. They all said, 10,000 mornings from now, Jesus, we will be with you. You can count on us. They all said it. And Mark says, they all left him. And they all fled so much so that we get this story about a streaker in the garden, right? 51, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked, right? I, I have read many pages of people are trying to guess who is that guy and what is that about. Some have said maybe it's Mark s- sort of like putting himself into the story saying, I was there, I don't want to tell you about that either, but I was there. We have no idea. I think the point would be, It's almost as if Mark is saying, watch how they run. See how they flee. I mean, with such desperation and such haste that they're literally running naked through the woods in their haste to leave him, to run from him and save themselves. Isn't it something, friends, that the ones who had promised to follow Jesus the ones who had no doubt that they would endure, the ones who knew for sure that they would make it and they would not fall away and they would not stumble, that they all leave him and they all flee. And you look at the disciples and you ask yourself, am I immune? Am I immune from making extraordinary commitments to Jesus? Say in the safety and power of this room, Am I immune from making extraordinary declarations about my love for him and my commitment to him and my pledge to him in this room? And yet, when the hour of temptation comes, it's almost like all those promises that seem solid here turn into vapor then. And this ground that I was sure stood underneath my feet seems to crumble. Isn't it something what we're seeing here. And I want to say we should be sobered by it and warned by it and humbled by it. For friends, we are weaker than we know. There's one Scottish pastor from back in the day. His name was Robert Murray McShane. He had this one saying he he wrote in his journal, and he was thinking to himself, and he said, "I, I should never get to the place where I think that I'm above some temptation or some sin, that those things that those guys struggle with would never come to me. He wrote this. He said, the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. The seed of all sins is in my heart. McShane understood what? I am much weaker and more sinful than I know. In our day, a pastor named Tim Keller from New York, he says it this way. He says, when it comes to the understanding of our sinfulness, it's not enough to just ask, what have I done? But also, what am I capable of doing? If I was under certain threats, certain temptations, certain pressures, and certain opportunities, could I produce great evil? And the Bible's answer to that would be yes. That's the depth of my sinfulness. I remember it being in seminary and we had this pastoral class. And I remember the professor on the last day of this class, he walked through all these stories of Christians who had shipwrecked their faith and abandoned their faith and pastors who had ruined their lives and all these nightmare stories. And I remember his last sentence, stays with me still, his last sentence to the class was, do not leave here saying that will never happen to me. But instead, leave here saying, God, that must never happen to me. Do not leave here thinking, that will never happen to me. But plead, God, that must never happen to me. The Christian who understands there are depths to my depravity that I do not know. There is an entire root system of sinfulness in my heart I do not see. The Christian who can sing rightfully, Lord, I am prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God that I love, would then sing with all his might, so Lord, here's my heart, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. That Christian has no confidence in his own ability, and so throws himself desperately on Christ to hold him and to keep him and to remain him. That Christian who is sobered and humbled and warned will hear the warnings and the words of the scriptures in the New Testament and take them very seriously. That Christian will hear, for example, 2 Peter 1 verse 10, hear this word. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Isn't it something, by the way, that Peter said that? That Peter, on the other side of this scene, Peter, I will never leave you. Even if they all fall away, I will not, Peter. I will not deny you. Even if I have to die with you, stay with you, Peter. On the other side of all this, sobered and humbled and warned, says to Christians, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. That's vigilant. Don't don't let down. Don't go easy. Don't coast. Be diligent to confirm your calling and your election right? Don't don't be presumptuous. Christian, don't say, but I said a prayer when I was nine. Don't say, but I raised my hand or walked down an aisle or signed a card. I said this thing 10 years ago, or I got baptized on that day. Do not rest, Christian, on some past faith. Be diligent to confirm your calling and your election. A Christian who understands this will take seriously the warning of Hebrews 3. It says this in verse 12. Take care, brothers. We should underline those first two words. Take care, look out, watch out, take heed, be cautious of this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care, brothers, that there shouldn't be an unbelieving, evil heart in you so that you might fall away. Instead, but exhort one another every day. As long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You have come to share in Christ. You know how you know that? If you hold fast to the end. If you hold fast to the end, then you know that you had shared in Christ. So take heed. Take care. And even, I would say here, not only is the call to vigilance and to diligence and to take heed and to take care, he even says, exhort one another to this end. This one preacher I listened to or looked at, he's, he, he had this great phrase. He said, our eternal security with God is a community project. It's a community project. That, that's why the Christian who knows this about myself would come to you and say, what I know about me, I know about you too, that I am weaker than I know and more sinful than I'm aware. And I know that about you too. And so what ought we ought to do, we ought to exhort one another every day so that we might not be carried away by the deceitfulness of sin. What if we went into our soul care times, our discipleship groups, with that thought in mind? That I am so believing the warning here of the deceitfulness of sin in my own life and your life, that that's the attitude I'll come to when I hear what's going on in your life. And when I speak to you, back the gospel so that we might exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. So that we might endure to the end. Vigilance. Community. It, it changes how we see things. It changes how we see other brothers and sisters who stumble and fall. Not contempt, but fear and dread over our own souls. And and a humility that begins to walk alongside and say, what about me? We are weaker than we know, but I need you to hear this. While some of you would hear that, and you need to, please do not get stuck there. Because the point of this passage is not to drive that down to you and leave you in despair. That is not the point. I have this thought, I think it's right, that I've been thinking all week, that despair or pride, Satan is just as happy to have you stuck in either. And he does not care which one it is. Because when you're in pride, it will cause you to say things like, you can count on me, I will last to the end. And when you're in despair, you will say things like, you can't count on me, there's no way I'll make it to the end. But in either one, it's all about you. And either one is about me and what I can do or cannot do. And Satan is perfectly fine having you stare at yourself. To be stuck in pride so that your head swells up. Or stuck in despair so that your head shrivels down. Either one makes no difference to him. He's perfectly fine to have you stare at self. I think, if I'm right about this, if I've understood this right, I think pride and despair are like fraternal twins. They they look different. You might not even know, know that they were, but they're siblings. They've come from the same womb. They're born of the same seed. That's what this is like. And this passage is not leaving us in despair. It's warning us of pride, but not so that we might swing from pride and land in despair. The difference between Judas and Peter One goes on to be the rock on which the church is built. One becomes the most famous villain in all of history. The difference between them is not their sin. It's not even their guilt or what they did. One betrays him. One denies him. They both feel horrible for what they've done. I'd imagine both of them have wept tears. In fact, Judas, one of the accounts says, I have sinned. He even tries to make it right. He takes the money back and brings it back to the priest and says, I've done wrong. I don't want this money. He doesn't even keep the money. The difference is not in what they've done, but the difference, I think, is what they did after they sinned. It's what they did after they sinned. For Judas, he got stuck. Stuck staring at himself. Stuck staring at his sin. It it means for us, it's a warning for us, that remorse And regret is not enough. You can be hating yourself and sorry for what you've done and still go to hell. For it's not enough. He got stuck staring at himself. You can't unring a bell. You can't undo sin. So what will you do after you sin? The difference with Peter is he's there long enough to look back at Jesus. And I want you to hear this. Since Satan would be perfectly happy to have you stare at yourself, we need to see that we're weaker than we know, but there's something else we have to see, and that's that Jesus is stronger than our weakness. Please do not get stuck. See this with me. Fight the good fight of faith in your heart right now to see this. We are weaker than we know, but Jesus is stronger than our weakness. Jesus is stronger than we are weak, My weakness is great, but he is stronger than my great weakness. My weakness is great, but it's not greater than his strength. In fact, in this scene, would you look for a moment? Picture in your mind this scene. Make a mental movie of it for a moment. Would you see the scene? Would you see the torches burning? Would you see Judas betraying? Would you see Peter swinging? Would you see the ear bleeding? Would you see the disciples fleeing? Would you see them all running? And in the midst of all that action and all that failure and all that chaos in the garden, in the middle of it all, almost like a light from heaven, could you see the one man standing in the garden? Could you see almost as if everything slow motions around him? Could you see him? Could you see the one success in the midst of all the failure in the garden. Could you look at him? Could you look at the one who didn't run? Could your heart right now see the one who didn't flee? Who though he was abandoned, didn't abandon? Who though he was left, didn't leave? Who remained faithful when everyone else failed? Who endured when everyone else quit? who had gone into the garden saying, please let this remove from me, emerged from the garden saying, I will drink the cup, and who persevered and did not flinch and did not falter and did not fail. Could you see in the garden the one who didn't call down the legion of angels, though he could have, and didn't say to the father, look at them run, I'm out of here, I'm done with this mission. Who did not leave, could you see the faithful Jesus, the unfailing Jesus, the hero in the garden Jesus, Could your soul stare at him? And Mark will tell you this Jesus will let them take him and will let them put him on trial and will let them put him on a cross, and he will die there on that cross for my broken promises. He will die on that cross for your wanderings. He will die on that cross for our stumblings, for our failures, for our falls. He will take our place. This is the good news. He succeeded, I failed. But on the cross, he got treated like a failure so that I could be treated like a success, like I could be treated like I was faithful. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. See him. And I think one of my favorite verses in this whole section is did you catch what Jesus said before all of this in verse 28? In verse 28, before all this went down, when he predicted their betrayals, when he said they'd all fall away, in verse 28 he says this, you'll all fall away, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. What does that mean? Their word didn't mean anything. His word, you could bank your life on it. He was saying, you will all fall away, I will die, but when this is done, I will come back for you and I will meet you up in Galilee. Isn't it a wonderful thing? You will leave me, but I will be coming back for you. You will abandon me, but I will return and meet with you. And he does. And they that fled and he that denied on that encounter, they were forgiven, they were redeemed, they were restored. So that seven mile road, the only hope, that you and I have that tomorrow morning or the morning after that, or 10,000 mornings from now, is that he will hold me. He will preserve me. He will keep me fast. If you belong to Jesus, yes, be vigilant. Yes, take heed. Yes, be warned of the deceitfulness of sin. Yes, have no self-confidence in your own ability. But if you belong to Christ, be assured. His commitment to keep us is strong even when our commitment to remain is weak. His grip to hold us is unbreakable, even if our grip to hold him is very weak. So run to Jesus. Come to him today. Regret and remorse is not enough. It must lead to repentance, and repentance is a turning away and looking to Jesus and seeing him in your place. If you're here this morning if your heart has grown hard then jesus is here today and he can soften a hard heart if the embers of your heart the fire has grown cold he is here today and his spirit can breathe on those embers again and a spark could come if you've wandered if you've stumbled or fallen then he's here today to bring you back home to pick you up Because our failures are not final or the last word when we look to Jesus, when we look to him. And so let's stare at him. Let's have no confidence in our ability to hold him, but every confidence in the world in his ability to hold on to us. For friends, we are weaker than we know, but Jesus is stronger than our weakness. He is stronger than we are weak. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray just the words of Jude 1, verses 24 and 25, as we finish. So let's pray together. God, now to you who are able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of your glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, Before all time and now and forever. Amen. God has spoken.